I think Americans seem to like the new industrial policy. They seem to like the prospect of major investment in innovation, technology, and new jobs. And not for nothing, given the incredible range of the Inflation Reduction Act from dealing with solar, wind, storage, hydrogen, carbon sequestration, this is going to have impacts in red states and blue states and purple states. Hello and welcome to Energy 360 from the CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Program. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. It has been less than a week since the U.S. held midterm elections, and we wanted to understand the role that energy and climate might have played in some of the state and local elections. Some states like New York and California had climate issues on the ballots, and others like New Mexico, Texas, and Ohio are states where voters may have been responding to energy or climate issues when casting their ballots. And while we still have a few undecided elections uh, at the time of this recording, what does this outcome give the Biden administration? Do they get more breathing room on their climate and energy agenda going forward? We're very pleased to have David Goldwyn, a longtime observer and practitioner of the U.S. energy agenda and a friend of the program. He joins Joseph Mikett to discuss the role that energy might have played in this year's midterm elections. Here's Joseph to kick off the conversation. David, welcome to the Energy 360 podcast. I'm very excited to talk to you today. Even though there's still a lot of uncertainty about the outcome of the election, the role that energy and climate played both in the results of the midterms and also the outlook for the Biden administration's agenda is a great thing to talk to you about, sir. So welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. And, and yes, lots of interesting things to talk about. Let me start right at the top. What role do you think energy and climate played in the midterms, both in the run up to Election Day and have you seen any interesting indications in how energy and climate played in the results themselves? Well, I think overall, inflation was on the ballot and the cost of living and energy prices, gasoline prices were a big part of that. But I think for the most part, energy and climate were not the big driver in most of the races. Uh, I think the Biden administration did a good job of saying that freedom and democracy were on the ballot. And I think a lot of the Democratic wins, the very surprising Democratic wins, were because the Democratic Party had stronger candidates. There was rejection of some of the fringe candidates, and that overrode some of the specific issues. So I think overall, energy and climate was not a dispositive issue, but in particular state races, energy and climate was definitely on the ballot. Let's talk about gas prices just for a minute more, though, right? Because for the last six, eight months, there's been this palpable sense in media coverage, rumors about Ron Klain checking the gas price 25 times a day on his iPhone. That was such a huge priority for the Biden administration. And they made real moves to try and loosen oil markets in the wake of the, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, most notably releasing millions of barrels out of the SPR for a period of, of months in sort of an unprecedented use of that, of, of our strategic petroleum reserve. Is somebody going to think, well, this was a successful use of that tool to achieve political ends and our president's going to want to use the SPR now in, in ways that we haven't really seen them do before? Well, I think the Biden administration was successful in, in deploying the SPR to help put a little bit of a ceiling on gasoline prices. And that, that was a very effective tool. You have to look back and see how has, how U.S. administrations used the SPR in the past. And we tend to buy high and sell low. We tend to spend it for making up budget shortfalls. It tends to be too little, too late when it comes to, you know, to actually putting uh, oil on the market by the time we get around to making a decision. So I think you know the administration has been actually quite deft in some ways 
by going big, going early, and communicating its use, which is, I think, the most effective way to use the SPR. You can't do it forever. It can't be a, a race to the bottom. You can't outlast OPEC when it comes to releasing it. But that was pretty effective. And I think future presidents will use it to go big and go early, hopefully, if there's a serious disruption. They've also been clever, I think, in, in saying that they're going to refill the SPR by having this fixed price buyback at $70 a barrel. That's important for two reasons. One is we do need to refill the SPR you know, to a significant level so that we have it as a tool to use the next time we want to use it. Second, a big reason why U.S. shale has underperformed despite extremely high prices is that the private equity masters of those independent companies are fearful of oil price volatility, fearful that the price will crash again, and that they will they will lose money as they did for many years. And so they have been reluctant to allow, allow these profits to be reinvested for more production, and they're taking them for dividends. And so the administration is, is saying, to the extent that you're worried about prices dropping under 70, we can tell you we're good for X hundred million barrels. So I think that's, you know, you can debate whether it's going to be effective or not, but I think it's a smart policy. So I think that is a precedent going forward, and it's probably a useful one as we deal in a world where there may be you know, less oil consumption, less oil production, a greater role for OPEC. We're going to still have to play defense for the next decade, and using you know, strategic reserves in a prudent way, I think, is a good tool. Yeah, I, I think it's very interesting, right? I mean, one of the things we talk about in the halls here at CSIS is the U.S. hasn't quite grown into its role as a major energy producer. And a big part of that story is that our political leadership has not quite figured out how to respond to the U.S.'s new status as a major market provider and consumer. And I sort of see the moves that the Biden administration has made over the last year as foretelling that there, there probably will be more political management of the U.S. supply. It's not going to look like what OPEC does. And maybe, the, maybe these early moves with the SPR are an indicator of how it might be used to sort of dampen market volatility, which will have the, the effect of benefiting the incumbent president and kind of will look very political, but really probably also benefits consumers and U.S. producers. It's true. Now, there are statutory authorities and they have to be careful to stay within them. There has to be uh, you know, serious material economic disruption. So you can't intervene for price um, and you wouldn't want to change the authorities of the SPR to allow that to happen. But you know, the reality is that in the last year we did face, you know, a serious adverse material disruption, you know, in in part because of, you know, of sanctions that we imposed, but you know, but that, that was in response to to Russia's uh, you know, illegal invasion of of Ukraine. So, you know, serious things were going on and there was an appropriate use of the tool. But you raise a more important fundamental point is we are the world's largest oil and gas producer. We're not the largest exporters, but we play an indispensable role in the world market. At the same time, we're trying to navigate the energy transition. And Democrats in particular are deeply ambivalent about whether they want to be that global producer at the same time that they want to be, a, you know, we want to be a leader on climate change. And Republicans are, you know, congressional Republicans, I think, are ambivalent, might be charitable about whether they want to be the world's largest oil and gas producer. And there are cases where the energy transition is okay. I think if you poll Republicans under 50, they have much, much more stronger views uh, about wanting to achieve the, the energy transition and seeing the economic and competitive opportunities there. But congressional Republicans are a bit of a different class. And so we do have to figure out what we want to be when we grow up, because whether we act or we don't act, we are a, we are a big player in global oil and gas markets.
We're recording Friday morning, November 11th, and like the full election results are not in. We're still waiting to know who's going to have control of the Senate, which party will have control of the Senate, which party will have control of the House. In either case, it looks like it's going to be, again, pretty evenly matched. But one of the big narratives is that Democrats overperformed expectation. The president faces a low approval rating. Uh, we have high inflation. And yet we didn't see the red wave that many uh, thought was coming. This all happens three months after the Congress passes on a partisan basis, the biggest investment in climate and clean energy technology uh, in world history, right? The Inflation Reduction Act, $380 billion geared toward clean energy investment in the United States. One might have qualms about whether this is a climate bill or a clean energy subsidy bill or whatever. Needless to say, there is no apparent electoral sting that comes from the U.S. making major investments in climate and clean energy. What are your thoughts on, on that outcome? Well, I think it's, uh, in fact, quite the opposite. I think Americans seem to like the new industrial policy. They seem to like the prospect of major investment in innovation, technology, and new jobs. And not for nothing, given the, the incredible range of the Inflation Reduction Act from dealing with solar, wind, storage, you know, hydrogen, carbon sequestration, this is going to have impacts in red states and blue states and purple states. So I think it ended up being really popular. And even individual green bond ballot measures like in New York State proved to be popular. So people like this. And if you just look at the offshore wind space, you've got you know service vehicles being made in Louisiana, cables being made in South Carolina, potentially monopiles being made in New Jersey, uh, you know, and electricity, which might you know wheel itself from New Jersey into Pennsylvania if, you know, if Pennsylvanians want it. So I think people like this. And so far from even being a negative, we are seeing that governors that campaigned on being progressive on energy and climate, like in Michigan, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Oregon, ended up winning. And in four of those states, they got a trifecta, you know, by being able to sweep their, their Senate and houses, all talking about having, you know, renewable energy portfolios, investments in, in other renewables, uh, you know, various state level policies to drive this investment. So it's proving to be actually pretty popular. And the fact that it is a way to bring down electricity costs over time when inflation is on the ballot is also quite popular. The only thing which didn't seem to be popular was taxing millionaires in California to provide money for, you know, electric vehicles for low income people. And maybe it's because only the rich people turned out to vote on that proposition, but that, that one went down, but everything else seemed to go pretty well. I mean, there are exceptions, you know, you know, Texas is one, but you have to realize where you are. Texas has a lot of renewable energy. Um, everybody in Texas wants to have a hydrogen hub. So it's not like they're against this stuff, but oil and gas is a huge driver of the economy. And, um, and it's hard for, for Democrats to have a very progressive agenda and make progress in Texas. But, you know, Texas is always, always a little bit unique. I mean, what do you think our political leadership is going to learn about this? If I can ask you to, to make a projection. 1993, President Clinton works on the BTU tax. In 94, they get shellacked. Nearly 30 years later, Biden passes major climate legislation, and it didn't hurt him, and you make a case it helped. Are we going to now see a bipartisan fervor to make climate and clean energy investments part of the sales pitch for, for politicians? Well, I, I hope they learn two lessons from this election. One is that Moderate candidates running in state elections tend to do better than other kinds of candidates. 
And the second is that Americans kind of like industrial policy designed to bring down costs, provide independence from foreign countries, reduce volatility and, and dependency. So I think the lesson absolutely the Biden administration will take away from this election is that it's doing the right thing with the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act and full steam ahead. The lesson I'm not sure they'll learn, which I hope they learn, is that oil and gas and fossil fuels remain an important part of driving the economy and their affordability is important not only for, for gross national product, but for the livelihood of people across the country. And so we have to find a way to be for responsible production of fossil fuels so we can provide gas to Europe, low-cost electricity, a competitive industrial base compared to other countries, and reduce emissions at the same time. You know, Obama called that all of the above, and the Biden administration doesn't want to use that phrase because, you know, that's been used before, but they need to find a way to decide what the role of gas is in the energy transition. And in my view, decide whether it is okay for a democratic administration to be for the United States remaining a global significant producer of fossil fuels, as long as we are low cost, low risk, and low emissions. And that's that last part is really key. Can we, is it okay for us to do it if we've got good rules on flaring, on methane, and I think it's going to be a you know a challenge for the industry is to see whether they, if the administration can be for that, can they be for the regulations to make the production base truly low carbon? Right. So I actually wanted to hit you with a quote that I, I found when I was preparing for our discussion today. This comes from uh, John Fetterman. So Fetterman won the Pennsylvania Senate seat and in an open election against Dr. Oz. We can leave aside the cartoon nature of some of this and just say this this guy is from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, right? Sort of the Bernie Sanders wing. Very strong focus on working class issues. And this is what he says about climate and energy in an interview with Rolling Stone. I've said this time and time again, Republicans must be more honest about our climate and Democrats need to get honest about energy. If you take nuclear out of the equation and you wanna take natural gas out, well, okay. Where does 60% of our electricity come from overnight? I have people in my own community that can't afford to keep gas on in their house during the winter. If we ban fracking, for example, how do people heat their homes or afford to heat their homes or cook their food? These are all practical issues and it requires a true bipartisan Marshall Plan. And right now, unfortunately, it's hopelessly divided. End of quote. I mean, this to me is kind of an, like, an interesting and moderate perspective you have from the person who could be the 51st Democratic vote in the Senate, depending on how races in Arizona and Georgia shake out. What's your, what's your view on that issue and how does that fit into the Democratic world? Well, I think John Fetterman's got it right. And I think it is incumbent on Democrats if they want to win elections in states where there is still significant hydrocarbon production to recognize what, you know, soon to be Senator Fetterman is, is saying. Because it's not only true in Pennsylvania, you know, but New Mexico and Ohio and, you know, are, are significant producing states. And if you want to be competitive, you know, in a lot of those states, if you want to compete in Ohio, if you want to even start to compete in Texas, you have to recognize that this last year energy crisis, you know, if nothing else has taught us that you cannot skip to a world of 100% renewable energy without taking the intermediate steps. And you can't eliminate gas and oil and that kind of production until you have something to replace it. We should be on a path to replace it. 
But if you're going to say we're going to just skip from one to the other, then you're going to come off as unrealistic. And as John Fetterman said, you're going to be targeting the livelihood of people in the short term unnecessarily. And, and I think Democrats are going to get hurt in those states. So whether it's all of the above or it's a responsible path forward, I think he's got that right. We've got to recognize we've got to get from here to there. It doesn't mean that you can't have strict regulation on water disposal, on fracking, on induced seismicity, on methane emissions, on flaring. You know, you can run the whole, the whole playbook on all of that and make it more responsible. But a line of we're going to eliminate hydrocarbons, as the president, you know, unfortunately, you know, said during the campaign, it just doesn't come off as either realistic or persuasive in a state like Pennsylvania where you want to compete. So I'm hoping the administration makes a little bit of a pivot after the midterms to a more centrist policy, which recognizes that globally, if we are going to replace Russian oil and gas. You know, Russian exports you know, 7 million barrels a day of, of oil. It's, you know, huge amounts of gas. If we are truly going to replace that supply, then the U.S. has to be a part of replacing it in the most low carbon responsible way possible. But we need to recognize we're going to be a player and that we're going to do it the right way. I think if we can make that pivot internationally, which is we're going to be there for our allies. And if we can make the pivot domestically, which is we're not going to move from our net zero targets, but we are going to find a smart regulatory path to still be a producer and get there. And we're not talking about keep it in the ground. I think then you can reach common ground on a low emission strategy. And I think you'll win a lot more votes if you're Democrats in those states when you're coming up to 2024. Or, yeah, or maybe disarm climate, right? I mean, what's interesting to me about this quote is the invocation of this bipartisan Marshall Plan, right? I'm not I'm not exactly sure what he means by that. I look forward to finding out. But you know, Jamie Dimon, for instance, has said the same thing in the past year, that the U.S. needs a Marshall Plan for energy security and clean energy investment. It does seem like there's a desire for the U.S. to be an energy security provider internationally, to maintain or accelerate ambition for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which I don't think is as controversial in the Republican world as it, as it was a, even a few years ago. But in a closely divided Congress, the idea that some more policy can be made in a bipartisan way is kind of mathematically appealing. Is that politically possible? I think it is politically possible. I would just say we've got a Marshall Plan on clean energy with the infrastructure bill and the, the Inflation Reduction Act. So I think we've got what we need. The administration just needs to execute. I don't think we need a Marshall Plan on the hydrocarbon side, but I think the challenge is infrastructure. What's really holding up gas flows, a bit of what's holding up the kind of oil production that we would need to help bring down gasoline prices is the fact that it is so challenging to permit pipelines in the U.S. and it's so challenging to permit export infrastructure. And that's where I think the opportunity is for bipartisan support, and that's permitting. And what we're talking about for permitting, for the folks who don't follow this from day to day, is being able to enable a developer to put in a piece of infrastructure, whether that's going to be an offshore wind development, or it's going to be a gas pipeline, or it's going to be siting CO2 or hydrogen pipeline you know, across state lines in a reasonable time frame with a predictable schedule, with clear information about what they have to analyze and disclose about emissions and also environmental impacts of their project, and that they'll get a decision pretty quickly so that they can build their project so somebody wants to finance it. And that is not the system we have now where it takes us three times as long as, as most other countries. 
So I think the bipartisan opportunity, which could happen in the lame duck, or it could happen probably post-April in 2024, is to agree on permitting rules which affect both renewable energy and hydrocarbon production. No one has to give up environmental impact or harm NEPA in any way, but we're talking about timelines, we're talking about clear instruction, and we're talking about not only having federal agencies grant those approvals, but we're also wanting the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to have clear policy as well. I think there is the opportunity to do that because like when we cut the deal for wind and solar, you know, production and investment tax credits and lifting the, you know, the crude oil export ban, there had to be something for everyone. So there's a, it's not a grand bargain, but it's a bargain to be had here. And I think that may be the only part of the energy policy arena where we could get a bipartisan bill in the next two years, but I think it's top of the list. Yeah. I mean, drawing the comparison between the IRA and the Marshall plans, I struggle with because the IRA is so domestically focused. It's not looking outward and sort of trying to think about what the role of the U.S. and the global energy system is. Even its proponents are like, well, the best we can say is that it's going to reduce cost of technology and that's going to help in other places. But like the U.S. really doesn't have a strategy for exporting the successes of the IRA at this time. Neither does it have a strategy for how it's going to replace two or three million barrels of Russian oil exports in a fashion that is benefits the climate. You can sort of work out on paper, as you and I have both done, how those things could happen, but it feels like there is like more political space than just permitting reform, in my opinion. No, I think that's right. I guess what I meant on the Marshall Plan is we certainly don't need to put government money into you know oil and gas production, but you know we do need clarity of policy about you know how we want to play on the the global stage. I mean, it's interesting. I think we could probably get to the point where we become exporters of a lot of these clean energy technologies, but we have such a ways to go here at home in ramping up generation. I think it's going to be a little while before we go from you know, producing a domestic value chain or domestic within the USMCA rules and becoming an exporter. But I think that's I think that's coming. I'd like to talk a little bit about the outlook for the Biden administration's climate and energy agenda for the next couple of years. This outcome is perceived as, as a victory for his administration. You've written quite a bit about what the path forward looked like for implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act, the regulatory backstops that the administration might do. What are you looking at over the next couple of years, given what you've seen? And does the control of the Senate dramatically change what the Biden administration can and will do on climate and energy? Great question. And I think the good news for the Biden administration is no matter what happens in the House or Senate, the vast majority of the control of what happens to their climate and energy agenda rests in their own hands. And that's because there's you have this $370 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act. You've got the money from the infrastructure bill, and it's a question of how effective can the administration be in implementing that legislation and moving the money. That's why they brought John Podesta, who knows the ins and outs of how government works, to help move this. So that means moving money into projects, but smart projects. It means getting Treasury to write the tax regulations in a way that is WTO compliant and doesn't undermine our, you know, our relationship with Canada and Mexico, but still drives investment forward in a, in a clear way and very quickly. So that's really job one. And what's important about the gubernatorial victories in so many states is that this money is going to move from the federal government to state government. And when you have governors who are interested and willing to spend money on clean energy, they're going to help get that capital deployed quickly. So that's really the first job. The second one is the slate of regulations the administration has been working on, Clean Power Plan 2.0, methane and flaring regulations, disclosure, SEC disclosure rules. So 
they knew from the beginning, before we even knew that Senator Warnock had you know, won the Georgia election, that moving regulations quickly in a way that could survive this Supreme Court or a Supreme Court that was going to likely have a very narrow construction of, of regulatory authority gets done and gets through the notice, comment, and litigation phase so that it is done before it is subject to a Congressional Review Act revocation in a potential Republican administration in 2024. So that's been the strategy from day one, and they are full speed ahead on that. Again, that's an execution risk, and it's within the administration's hands, but I think they can do that. All of that is in their hands. The other thing that is in their hands is sanctions policy and climate diplomacy. And so a lot of what happens, not on the climate side, but on the energy side in terms of prices and popularity is how effectively they pursue sanctions policies against Russia and what we do with Iran and what happens to Venezuela. So that's within their hands and it's been a little bumpy, but I think that can happen as well. And then, you know, in the climate world, I think the thing that is in within the administration's hands is whether or not we will have a significant change in multilateral development bank policy to reorient the direction of those banks to move money into, into climate finance and really into adaptation where private capital doesn't want to go rather than just mitigation. And that is within their control. And given that, it's very unlikely that even if Democrats take the Senate and Republicans have the House, or frankly, even if we had both houses and we're trying to do budget reconciliation, that there will be significant new money appropriated for international climate finance. So they've got to find a better way. Good news is they can do all that within their own power. You know, the challenging news is it's really hard to do it when you're getting called up for hearings before the House of Representatives, you know, and every dollar that you spend is being scrutinized. So not to say it's going to be easy, but definitely possible. The issue you raise around the U.S.'s international approach to climate and clean energy, that's also a place where I think bipartisan opportunity is wholly under underexplored. If you talk to Republican members of Congress or their staffs, a lot of them will say like, hey, we're fine with decarbonizing. We think that that's probably good. We don't want greenhouse gas emissions in some sort of belligerent manner, but we don't want to get hoodwinked by China and India. And we don't want to spend too much money here without seeing commensurate emissions reductions abroad. Of course, some sort of international engagement is exactly how you address that problem. It's just everything that has been done so far kind of codes as foreign aid, not as a strategic energy policy or a strategic climate policy. I think that's like a wide open space for a lot more thought leadership. Well, it'll be interesting to see what the, the, the composition of the, particularly on the House side of the Republican caucus is like. There is a conservative climate caucus. It's pretty small um, and it's not all that salient. But when you have what may be uh, looking like a five vote majority on the House side, every significant caucus can have a lot of influence. Now, it could be the MAGA caucus, which is driving them to the right, but it could be the climate caucus, which is driving them in a different direction. So I agree with you. There's, there's opportunity there. It'll just be more challenging if it involves money. If you were to make a forecast, what do you think are the big three or four issues that Congress needs to look at next year, regardless of how the control of either house shakes out? You know, the U.S. really needs to do these things well. These are the issues that are going to affect consumers and business. But what are those top issues? Well, actually, the debt ceiling is probably number one, full faith and credit of the United States. And you will have just massive turmoil in, you know, in, in the bond markets if you know, if we have another bit of brinksmanship where it's not clear whether the U.S. is going to live up to its financial responsibilities, it'll you know certainly have an indirect effect on energy and climate. But that's really job number one, and there's a lot to do in, in the lame duck. I hopefully hopefully they will get that that done. 
The other is going to be just basic appropriations. I mean, it's going to be really challenging if we're if we're in a world of sequester again. You know, even we have the IIJA, the infrastructure money, and the you know the IRA money. Agencies have to function. They have to be able to have staff, and so you'll see a lot of brinksmanship there. So it would be nice for them to pass appropriations bills, or at least to have continuing resolutions which don't impact the government. You know, on the must-do list. That's really it in the energy and climate space. I mean, permitting would be really important, hopefully in the lame duck or early on. But when you get beyond permitting, we don't need another energy and climate bill. It would be nice to have that international climate finance money, but I don't think it'll happen. It would be really important to have permitting if we can get that done. But that's all they need to do. Other than that, it's just do no harm. I have very low expectations, regardless of who wins the House or Senate at this point, of any significant legislation coming out over the next couple of years. What do you think are the biggest opportunities or risks on the oversight side, right? The Biden administration has been given a ton of money by Congress. There's no guarantee they spend it well or, or in the way that Congress would like to see. And that kind of sits outside of partisan valiance. What do you think the oversight task to Congress is going to be? Well, oversight, when done well, you know, is accountability and responsibility for government action. Oversight, when done purely to intimidate or disrupt, is sand in the gears. And I think a lot of what's been promised, you know, is sand in the gears. So I think what we're going to see, aside from some of the the wackier stuff, like you know, possibly you know, impeachment and you know, all this other things, which which uh, Republicans have been talking about doing in terms of investigations, is there's going to be a lot of scrutiny of the loan programs office and a lot of scrutiny of every agency that is deploying uh, Inflation Reduction Act money about what are you spending, what are you spending on, you know, they're they'll be looking for the next cylinder. And a practical matter, it means that your principals, you know, your secretary, your head of agency and their staffs and their congressional staffs and everybody else has to be answering questions for the record, preparing testimony, you know, and doing busy work basically to respond to that. And that slows you down. And this is an administration like any administration, which has responsibilities which exceed their administrative capacity. So people are already really overtaxed and this will slow them down. So that's that's the biggest risk is everything moves more slowly because of disruption. I think in terms of opportunities, the only major opportunity that I see achievable is in permitting. And that's where there's enough of a win on both sides. There's enough of a strategic responsibility for the U.S. to be a global supplier and a domestic imperative to deploy renewable energy projects and capital quickly that there could be a, a win-win there. Yeah, I agree. That one, actually, we did a podcast maybe a month ago. And we had somebody from the right, somebody from the left. It, it does actually feel like this is one of those moments where there is a true consensus in Washington around the need for permitting reform. What exactly that means to each individual is, of course, different. But whether it happens in the lame duck or whether that's a conversation for next Congress, it seems like that would be one of the top issues that they should be facing. David, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Is there anything we missed or anything that you're uh, looking forward to seeing in the next few weeks that dramatically changes the outlook for energy and climate over the next couple of years? Well, one thing that is on the agenda, which could significantly disrupt energy markets, is the implementation of the price cap and the way we manage Russia sanctions. The European Union is planning now on uh, prohibiting European companies and others from participating or providing services to any uh, transaction in Russian oil and in, as of February 5th, Russian products, unless they're subject to a price cap. We still don't know what the cap is. We don't know a lot of the details about 
exactly what is and is not prohibited. Uh, and December 5th, the date for that implementation is coming up. So there is a potential if there is not greater clarity and efficacy in how this is done to move anywhere between you know, 750,000 barrels a day to 3 million barrels a day of Russian crude off the market. That's a big price spike. And when it comes to products, it could put a big squeeze on products and on diesel. We could be in a situation where we're looking at WTI north of $100 and very low inventories of diesel and other products in the Northeast and in other places. An administration which is then pushed into considering measures in extremis to address those issues. That would be a very unfortunate place for, for the country economically and for the administration politically. So that's the thing I'm watching the most. And again, that's something where sort of smart policy and diplomacy can make things work smoothly, but it's been pretty bumpy. And if we're in a world of talking more about you know export bans and domestic restrictions, it's going to be pretty ugly and it's going to be a distraction and it may not have the intended effect of moderating prices for Americans. So for me, that's the big wild card. Uh, and it's coming up quick. Well, David, thank you kindly for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you the next time. Thanks to David and Joseph for today's discussion. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 at CSIS.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy for updates. And thanks for listening.